Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, open up to 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2. 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2. And as you're opening there, let me just extend a personal word of gratitude uh, to the church for such a um, honoring and undeserving Sunday as we had last week. Uh, thank you so much for all the kind words, all the kind gifts, the generosity of the church and the love of the church. Um, it was a sweet thing to read the kind notes and to reflect back on 10 years of ministry. And so I can't begin to tell you how loved and appreciated our family felt last Sunday. And so thank you so much. And uh, we're so grateful for you and um, look forward to the next 10-year celebration. It's going to be a lot of fun. Hopefully, by God's grace, we'll be there. All right. First uh, Samuel chapters 1 and 2. I'm going to read to you now. Uh, Nathan read a big chunk of chapter 1, but we're going to move on over now to chapter 2. We'll be looking at all these verses up to chapter 2, verse 11 this morning, but we're going to read right now in particular chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if you would, why don't you stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. The author writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to us, beginning of verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth for the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed the bows of the mighty are broken but the feeble bind on strength those who were full have hired themselves out for bread but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger the barren has borne seven but she has who has many children is forlorn the Lord kills and brings to life he brings down to Sheol and raises up the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them He has set the world. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them he will thunder in heaven the Lord will judge the ends of the earth he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed then Elkanah went home to Ramah and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest let's pray together O oh Lord, our God, I pray you would open our hearts and minds today to receive your word. And O oh God, don't let us leave here without being changed by the power of your Holy Spirit through this word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In the early 2000s, a sociologist named Christian Smith published a book. And in that book, he coined a phrase that describes the religious attitudes of teenagers 
at the time. He had done surveys with teenagers in the early aughts or the early 2000s there. I think the book came out in 2005 and he, he coined a phrase there to sort of describe what his research found. And this was the word. Now listen, it's a, it's a mouthful, but I want you to listen carefully. The word was moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, that is, determining, determining morals or to do with morals. Therapeutic, that is, to do with therapy. And deism is an old view of God as opposed to something like theism where God's active in the world. Deism is the sort of old divine watchmaker idea, idea that God sort of wound the world up and then was distant from it from that point on. These were the characteristics. There were four characteristics that uh, Smith and his colleagues published here that, that led them to this term. Here, here's the first one that teenagers at this point believed. These were the characteristics of such an attitude. First of all, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Second of all, these teenagers would say that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number three, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Number four, good people go to heaven when they die. Now, to put it in perspective, I graduated high school in 2004. This book was published in 2005. So that means this is the general consensus of people about my age. And uh, you may find this hard to believe, but we're adults now. Most of us. And so, I think, it, I think it is reasonable to believe that this basically represents the common religious attitudes of our day. Not only of this generation, but I see this across the board in people younger and people older. A sort of therapeutic, moralistic deism coming out. It's a, a picture, at least paints part of the picture of the idolatrous sense of personal identity that permeates the world today. Another author named Carl Truman has recently done... a perhaps a historical magnum opus called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's a fantastic treatment of how we got here. It didn't just happen overnight. You know, we like to talk about kids these days all the time, but kids these days get uh, raised by adults these yesterdays, right? And, and then they get, they get raised by the generation before that and the generation before that. We get here in a way. Things happen along the way. As one author said, ideas have consequences. So, often, even as Christians, this is how we view ourselves and how we come to think of God. I, I've often called this sort of a rabbit's foot theology. God's only concerns in the world are my personal problems. And the only victory or breakthrough I need is for God to triumph over my personal problems. And then I can go back to regularly scheduled programming. And in thinking like this, and I see a lot of people who think this way, we tend to shrink down the plan and purpose of God to the little universe that centers around us. Make no mistakes, my friends. I, I, we're all snowflakes in one way or the other. We're all radically self-centered in one way or another. And that's why this story about Hannah is so radically countercultural. It's so strange to us to meet this woman who's crying and grieving, who's in the ash heap, and who then gives us an example of how to take our personal struggles and connect them to something greater 
than ourselves. You see, I'm, I'm not trying to say that God doesn't care about our trials, that God doesn't care about what we're going through, that He doesn't have the very hairs on our head numbered. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know He watches me. He cares more than we could ever imagine. In fact, some of you right now may be in the ash heap. You, you may be lying in the dust this morning. But instead of a shrunk down God who's nothing more than a therapist who shows up when you think you need him, instead I want you to be encouraged by the righteous and sovereign king who loves you in and through every single thing you encounter in his world. I hope you'll find comfort today by looking to the king and to the kingdom. In this passage, we see Hannah praying as she describes it, chapter 2, verse 8, from the ash heap. And that recognition of her humble state is in the context of this beautiful song of praise that we've just read, a kingdom hymn, if you will. And so this passage from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 2, verse 11, shows us the way that God takes humble people in less than humble circumstances and uses them for His glory. And I hope for those of you in the ash heap today, that's a comfort for you. I hope that's hopeful for you because here we see the triumph of simple faith, the beauty of prayer in our darkest moments, and the way that God's promises transcend all of our circumstances, no matter what situations we find ourselves in. This morning, from this beautiful story of Hannah and her faithfulness, I want to show you three truths that I think are going to help you through trials and difficulties in your life. I hope, no matter where you are, whether you are lying in ash heap prayers or you're singing kingdom hymns this morning, one way or the other, I hope you'll be able to see today the way that God's promises transcend all of our circumstances. I'm going to show you today three truths for when you're in the ash heap or for when you're singing a kingdom hymn or for anywhere in between. Here's the first point this morning. Here's the first point this morning. We must be a people, especially in trials, who embrace ash heap prayers. We must be a people who embrace ash heap prayers. The earliest verses of Samuel... Give us a picture of Hannah in the ash heap. Hannah in the dust. Hannah in the lowest and darkest moments in her life. This ought to be the golden years of Hannah's life. She's married to a man that loves her dearly and who is obviously a strong provider. He uh, seems to be a strong provider and there's evidence here that he is, but it also sort of provides one of Hannah's problems. Elkanah is enough of a provider that he's able to have two wives. They have to have plenty of money to support a household larger than one wife. He's a good enough provider to have a second wife. And this makes not only her first problem exist, but it makes her second problem even worse. While Penina had multiple children, Hannah had no children. And so what for so many of us is such a sound of joy and good things the pitter-patter of little feet. Occasionally the pounding of medium feet. The collision of small bodies. The pitter-patter of little feet around the house was always a reminder for Hannah of her deepest grief. 
a barren womb, a womb closed, in fact, by the Lord, according to verse 5. Elkanah, though, he was a faithful man. Year by year, he went to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice, as he ought to do. And there, Hannah received her consolation prize from her husband, a double portion representative of her husband's special favor. And later, when she's weeping over her sad state, he tries to comfort her with his love. Am I not better than ten sons to you? And yet, despite the fact that she's childless, he continues to lavish her with love, including an extra portion here in front of Penina and the children. How she must have longed to have her own little brood of children to share her portion with. The fact that she couldn't evaporated even her own hunger. And so each year she went to celebrate where there would be eating and drinking and merriment and joy. Instead, there was sorrow and sadness. And Penina, perhaps jealous of Elkanah's, Elkanah's love, chose to cruelly provoke her rival. Her childlessness was a fact that Penina made great sport of. She tortured her each year as they came to worship the Lord. And so this deep, dark situation, this ash heap plight, this life in the dust drove Hannah to pray. Now you notice she grieves. She's sorrowful. I don't want to discourage you from embracing the grief over things as they are. I've mentioned it before, but I want to mention it again. You are not required to be gospel robots. It's okay to cry. It's okay to weep. It's okay to grieve. Now, what I will discourage you from is, is whining, which is different than grieving. But when you find yourself in the ash heap, it's okay to grieve. It's okay to cry. It's okay to weep. It's okay to lose your, your hunger for the good things of God's life because of your grief and your difficulties. But at the same time, what I don't want you to do is hold those things back from the Lord. I, I hope that these moments will drive you to ash heap prayers. Notice in verses 9, 10, and 11 how Hannah prays. They had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, and Hannah rose. And there Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget me, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. That last little phrase there about the razor is probably a shorthand reference to what's called a Nazarite vow. A, a, a group of people, the Nazarites, who were specially set aside for service to the Lord. You might remember someone like Samson who had taken a Nazarite vow. And others in the Bible where they commit to a certain set of things for special service to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, God never wastes our time in the ash heap. God never wastes our days in the dust. And I know this some, a little, very little, by personal experience, but I also know this from 
hearing the testimony of faithful saints and seeing the faithfulness of God in the pages of the Bible, you will see here. Think about this. In the original text, 1 and 2 Samuel would have been one long story. A story ultimately about one of the most titanic figures in the history of Israel, second maybe only to Moses. That was King David. And notice the way this story of David, this epic story of kings, this story of the rise and fall of nations, this story of God keeping His promises to His people, do you see the way that the curtain of this story opens on a woman of seemingly little import from a unimportant place who's not even recognized by the priest Eli who's not even a good priest do you see the way it's opened here and would all of the events that happen afterward would they have happened if Hannah had not been driven to the fervent prayer she was driven to in her grief and distress Do you see how God used her time in the ash heap, her time in the dust to bring about a great and mighty work in Israel to raise up a king? Hannah sees it, as we'll see soon. But I want you to be reminded God never wastes our time in the ash heap. Run to God in prayer, my friends, in the days of your distress. Run to God in prayer. Don't keep this from God. I think sometimes when we're sad, when we're angry, when we're struggling, when we've got dust on our face and ashes on our forehead, when we're, when we're dirty before God, I think sometimes we're afraid to go to Him, afraid He'll be disappointed. Oh, but brothers and sisters, there's nothing that comes to you as a beloved child of God that does not come from His hand. You take these things to the Lord in prayer. You have nothing to be embarrassed of before God. Run to Him in prayer in the days of your distress. And oh, my friends, year after year, this is what Hannah did. Be willing to wait on the Lord in prayer. Be willing to wait on the Lord in prayer. That's what this rabbit's foot theology will do to us. We're doing our part. We've got the little lucky totem. We've prayed. We've done what we're supposed to do. It's time for God to do His part. Right? I've been faithful. I've been faithful. Why is God not giving me what I want? Praises go up, as one rapper said. Blessings come down. That's so often how we think. And yet, my friends, we have to be willing to wait on the Lord in prayer. We don't know how and when God's going to answer these prayers, but we know He will. In this life or the next, God will be faithful. He'll wipe every tear from our eyes. Be willing to wait. Second of all, second of all, Not only do we have to embrace ash heap prayers, but second of all, we must value simple faith. We must value simple faith. Verses 12 through 14, we begin to get a sense of the spiritual temperature of the religious establishment there at Shiloh. Hannah is praying in great distress. And you might have been in a situation like this where you are praying or you're in a situation you're thinking hard, you're focused, you're, a lot's going on, and though you're not verbalizing anything, nonetheless, your mouth is moving. You're praying to God, your eyes closed, and your mouth is moving. You might not even notice that it's happening. And Eli, standing there as she comes in, takes note of this woman who's come to pray, and as she's praying earnestly, pouring her soul out to God, the Bible says, therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. 
And to his own shame, he reprimanded her. How long will you go on being drunk? You've been at the family celebration. You've enjoyed too much of God's good blessings there. Put your wine away from you. Why, why are you coming here to pray drunk? Hannah humbly, you know, I would have said, I didn't even eat or drink anything. Who do you think you are talking to me that way? I'm here pouring my soul out before God. Shouldn't you notice when, when one of the sheep of Israel is struggling? Instead, she humbly turns around and says, I'm praying with great anxiety and vexation. I want you to notice something. Verse 17. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. The verses go on here, beginning in 19. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. And then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Now, what happens then? Hannah waits until Samuel is weaned. She probably had several years with the boy at home. In the ancient world, children were weaned much later than they are in these times. They didn't have food they could eat, so they... They uh, were weaned much later, and so perhaps at the age of four or five years old, they, Hannah finally goes back to Shiloh, and we see in verses 26 through 28, Hannah takes the sacrifice with her husband to Eli, and she says to him, O oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed. And the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. My friends, I, I think we must be the sort of people who value simple faith. Did you notice the way that Eli, despite him sort of being a little bit of a bumble theologically and as a priest... Nonetheless, when he pronounces the Lord is going to do what the Lord's going to do here for you, he's going to grant your petition. Do you notice how instantly, through simple faith, Hannah's countenance changed? She believed that God would do this. Uh, I think we also see here an intentional contrast by the author between Hannah, this woman of a beautiful and profound faith, and Eli, this wicked priest with wicked sons, who we've learned about only by name, but we'll soon, in the coming weeks, learn about by reputation. Don't you worry. Here we see the way that God is unfolding a new era in the priesthood at Shiloh. He is raising up someone new. And here we see the contrast between Hannah and Eli. And we see the way that God values simple faith. And I think we ought to recognize in our own hearts and minds that we ought to be the sort of people who recognize and value simple faith over mere credentials. You give me 1,000 Hannahs over one Eli who's got all the things he ought to have. The name, the bloodline, the authority, the garb, the descendants who should take on the priesthood after him. And yet, was essentially, as is said of his sons, a worthless man. A man who was 
not godly, and who didn't have faith. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Hannah was no theological lightweight. You just heard this beautiful psalm that she prayed. She understands the truth. She understands what God is doing in the world. Don't take simple faith to mean shallow faith. There's no question Hannah was a woman of great depth. Don't, don't hear me trying to act like Hannah was some lightweight bumpkin or, or something like that. No, she was a bold and godly woman who charged before the Lord and asked Him to answer her prayers. But I do want you to see that mere credentials do not necessarily produce vibrant faith. And that's one reason why I couldn't care less if you call me Reverend Alexander. You know? I don't care about some silly title. It's not in the Bible. Of all things, I'm not reverend. I don't think it's wrong. It's just a way to designate ordination, whatever. That's fine. I don't run around being angry about it or anything like that. But at the same time, who cares what kind of title you have? Who cares what kind of credentials you have? You give me people with a knowledge of the Bible and a simple faith that what God says, God does, and buddy, we'll get something done. I'll take simple faith. We have to have simple faith in God in every circumstance. And we must not give up on the giver once we get the gift. What a beautiful sign of Hannah's faith it is that she keeps her vow. She brings the little boy to Shiloh and commits him to service before the Lord. My friends, not only must we embrace ash heap prayers, not only must we value simple faith, but finally, we must praise God for His kingdom purpose. We must praise God for His kingdom purpose. Now, doesn't this seem strange to you? I'm sure it does. Isn't it strange that every year at Shiloh, Hannah would weep and cry. She would be provoked by Penina. She wouldn't be able to eat her food. She was so sad because she so longed for a child. Isn't it strange that she would vow to the Lord to give that son away? Doesn't it feel almost... Strange to us for Hannah not to just say, okay, I've raised my son, and maybe that's even the end of the story, that she's happy with her little boy. Part of why that's so strange to us, part of why that's so strange to us is the view of God that's so popular today that God sort of exists to help us out when we're in a jam. That our personal satisfaction and joy is the end-all, be-all of God's purpose in the universe. But see, Hannah doesn't think like that. She doesn't understand God's economy that way. You see, it's important to know that Hannah doesn't simply want full arms and a joyful household, but she wants to experience the fullness of the blessings of God. She wants to participate in the big picture of what God is doing. And as we know in the Old Testament, God's blessings on Israel were directly connected to the provision of a child because God had promised it was through a seed of the woman that the Messiah would come and would deliver Israel and in fact the world from the oppression of the serpent and from the sins which they had succumbed to. And so due to the nature of God's promises to Eve and also to Abraham, Hannah never saw her plight exclusively in terms of herself, but wanted more than anything to join in God's kingdom purpose. And that all sounds good and nice, but I want you to see how clearly she teases this out in this beautiful kingdom hymn that she prays out to God at Shiloh after she's handed the answer of her, to her prayers back over to the Lord. Here she sings this song out to God, saying in verse 1, My horn or my strength 
is exalted in the Lord. And these themes continue throughout this beautiful psalm. She talks about the supreme glory of God in verse 2. She talks about the way that God brings down the proud in verses 3 and 4. She, she, she praises God for His exaltation of the poor and the lowly in verses 5 and 6. And I really want you to focus for a moment here on verse 8, the way she ties all these things together here. Notice what she says in chapter 2, verse 8. He, meaning God, raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them He has set the world. Those foundations of the world that were shaken at the fall, Hannah sees as upright and sturdy through the work of God. Everything belongs to Him and He is able to even raise the poor and needy up from the dust and the ash heap. There's a rolling crescendo to the hymn as she moves forward in exulting praise to God. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King. And exalt the horn of his anointed, or in Hebrew, his Messiah. Hannah's horn in verse 1 becomes the horn of his Messiah in verse 10. Do you see the way that Hannah sees her exaltation as having a gospel focus? for lack of a better term, a kingdom focus. Do you see the way that in faith Hannah is prophesying about the role that her little boy and his linen ephod, they're serving before the Lord, will play a role in the rise of the Messiah of God, a faithful king, and I would argue an even better king to come after him. Brothers and sisters, we cannot forget to look at our own personal suffering and connect that and our micro-victories to the overarching victory of God through Christ. We cannot forget to connect all that God does to the kingdom that He is building, and that includes the small things He does in our lives to the big things He does in our lives, are ultimately connected to His purposes in building a kingdom through His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. When your horn is being raised... It's precisely because at the same time, God is raising the horn of His anointed, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Any good thing that happens to us, God is working out for our good through Christ. Whatever victories, whatever breakthroughs we might enjoy, we must always remember that the ultimate breakthrough comes through the gospel of Christ. It's part of His big picture of salvation that He's bringing about through His Son by bringing His kingdom into the world. Brothers and sisters, that's how ash heap prayers become kingdom hymns. And maybe some of you this morning, like so many before you, your kingdom hymn might, be not, might not be sung in victory at Shiloh. It may be sung still in the ash heap. But it's a hymn of hope, knowing that we serve a God that turns ash heaps and dust through resurrection into verdant, vibrant 
lush gardens of joy, peace, and love. Brothers and sisters, don't let your struggles and your trials drag you into a sort of self-centeredness where God is merely your therapist and the only good thing, the ultimate good thing that He can do is just make your life better. Instead, I want to press on you this morning. Trust God because even when we are in the ash heap, He is building His kingdom. I want to offer you an invitation this morning. If you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus for the first time, I want to invite you to come and know Jesus today. Now, that doesn't mean you have to come to this altar. I want to invite you, though, to the Lord Jesus Christ. You may meet Him right where you are. You may want to come talk to someone. You may meet Him at this altar. Just know this. If you turn from your sins in repentance and turn to God in faith through Jesus, if you repent and believe, I believe you will be saved. Jesus is a friend to sinners. If you need someone to talk to, to pray with, I'll be here for you. In just a moment. Second of all, you may be a Christian. You may say, Pastor, I need just a few moments to pray. You may need to grab a friend and ask them to pray with you here or there. You may need to talk to me and ask me to pray for you. What a joy it would be for me to do that. This altar is open to you this morning. Finally, you may be looking for a church home. Oh, I would love to talk to you today about what it means to be a member here at First Baptist Church. After this prayer, I want to invite you to come. Let's pray together.